Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 161 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the lectionary texts for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. You can find a link in the show notes to the lectionary that Peter and Alistair are using for these discussions. We really hope that you're sharpened and that you enjoy these observations on these texts. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, president of the Theopolis Institute, and I'm here with Alistair Roberts and Brian Motes. And today we're discussing the readings for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. That's September 2nd, 2018. And the readings for this coming Sunday are Deuteronomy 4, a couple of fragments of Deuteronomy 4, roughly covering verses 1 through 9, uh, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, and then Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. I had a hard time discerning any kind of continuity between the passages, so we'll just discuss them in order and see if we can come up with connections as we go. Deuteronomy 4, early on in the book of Deuteronomy, is part of what uh, scholars like uh, Meredith Klein describe as the historical prologue to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is set up roughly in the order of an ancient covenant document, and part of that ancient covenant document is for the the Lord of the relationship between uh, the Lord of the relationship, the Lord of the covenant, to not only identify himself but also to give some kind of historical an overview of his relation, the history of his relationship with his with his vassal, his servant and describes all the benefits that he's given to his servant uh, before the uh, document moves into a series of commandments and stipulations that that govern the relationship between the Lord and his vassal. So in Deuteronomy, we have the Lord. Moses is speaking throughout Deuteronomy, but the Lord is uh, introduces the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt. There's several chapters of uh, review of Israel's history from the time they were in Egypt until the time they got to the plains of Moab, uh, just on the other side of the Jordan, which is where they are when Moses speaks Deuteronomy. And then beginning in chapters 6 or so, well, beginning in chapter 5 actually with the uh, second recital of the Ten, the ten Words, the Ten Commandments, uh, you have a, uh, for 20-some chapters, you have stipulations and commandments that are given that are organized according to the order of the Ten Commandments. Many scholars have pointed this out. Uh, uh, Jim Jordan, in his book Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, deals with this at some length. So we're in that early section where the Lord is uh, identifying himself and giving him this, uh, giving Israel, reminding Israel of what he's done for them and the conquest uh, and the and the uh, obligation that they have to serve him. Something that I find this passage particularly significant for is the connection that it draws first between the law and wisdom, and mm. then that mm. wisdom and witness to the nations, that there is an implicit movement out from the obeying of the law, a movement in to the wisdom of the people, and then a movement out from that wisdom to the appeal to the nations round about. We can see this in Scripture to some extent, with the king as the one who has gained wisdom. And then that wisdom, as in the example of Solomon, as something that draws in people from round about that the Queen of Sheba and others come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But here, there seems to be, in the very heart of the law, at the very beginning 
of just before the law itself is recounted again, this emphasis upon that particular connection and something about the telos of this, that this is for not just the benefit of Israel, not just mm -hmm. for the good ordering of their life, it's for their life, it's for their flourishing, but it's also as something that will be a light to the nations. Mm -hmm. You put that into um, Jim Jordan's scheme of priest, king, prophet. Uh, each of those phases of Israel's life has a particular form of revelation associated with it. The priest is under Torah and commandments. The king is uh, delivers wisdom. Uh, he has to make judgments that are not explicitly covered by a set of commandments. The prophet is speaking uh, new worlds into being. He's speaking in a way that uh, resembles the Lord's uh, words, the, the power of the, the word of the Lord to destroy and to make new. Uh, but but your point is, to put it in Jim's terms, is that uh, the Torah itself is the ground, the priestly Torah is the ground for the royal wisdom that will grow yep. from it. And elsewhere in Deuteronomy, we see the king is the one who has to write out the book of the law, that he has to reflect upon this. And I was reading um, Psalm 119 in morning prayer this morning, and striking there is the emphasis that David places upon wisdom as a right. He's wiser than all the elders because he spends time in God's commandments. And he's someone who has learned more than all his teachers. Again, that wisdom is something that develops from out of the soil of the law. It's not. And the kingly wisdom is something that is connected to the close relationship that the king has with this book of the law. Yeah, that, and that, that uh, cuts both ways. It, it tells us something important about Torah, and it tells us something important about wisdom as the Bible understands it. Uh, Torah is uh, for the purpose of, uh, Torah is given for the purpose of training up into wisdom, for the purpose of training up into a kind of higher form of speech and a higher form of insight. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a trajectory to Torah. At the same time, as you said, that wisdom grows out of the soil of Torah. Sometimes have readings of the wisdom literature as if it were the biblical version of uh, natural law detached from special revelation. It's just reflection on ants and trees and such. Um, but that's cer certainly not the way that uh, the, the wisdom books present it. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Well, who's Yahweh? He's the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you go immediately back into the Torah. And it's not the way the Torah is presenting it here. Wisdom is is a an outgrowth of uh, of the Torah, and meditation on the Torah is what lends wisdom to uh, kings and rulers in Israel. I think your your point about the the international scope of this too is important. Um, this uh, in my Chronicles commentary described this as sapiential evangelism. What attracts the nations to Solomon's court is just the opportunity to sit in his presence and listen to his wisdom. That's what brings the Queen of Sheba there. And then when she gets there, she she sees not she not only can hear what he has to say. There's a there's a, a spoken wisdom that she receives, but then she sees that wisdom embodied in his kingdom, in the temple, in the buildings, in the way his court runs, in the the smooth organization and of his uh, of his servants. The way that the table is set and the way the table is served, that's an expression of wisdom. Um, and that's, that's, that is the thing that attracts the nations. Uh, if you go too far with that, with that, Alistair, you might be accused of being a theonomist. <laughs> <laughs> 
No comment? <laughs> I'll comment since you don't seem to want to touch that one. Um, I mean, this is this is one of the theonomist arguments that the Torah is not just given to Israel. The Torah is given to Israel for the sake of the nations. Uh, all the nations should recognize, as verse 8 says, what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? So that's an indication that the nations are supposed to recognize the, the wisdom of Torah, uh, which includes standards of public life, not just standards of private morality. Uh, and if you if you make that point, then you're you know kind of kind of on your way to be and being at least a a, a lowercase t theonomist, believing that God's law, that's given in the Torah and elsewhere in the Scriptures, uh, is the foundation, the basis, the to use your image, the soil from which uh, civil order and civil law should grow. You can say that without being a capital T theonomist in the sense that. Uh, uh, Greg Bonson, uh, R.J. Rushduni, and others in the in previous decades were, but I think that 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 insight we shouldn't in in making qualifications to uh, that reconstructionist form of theonomy we shouldn't lose the insight that they had into the global scope of the Torah. It intends to be a word that's given to Israel for the sake of the nations. But yet, even in that witness, it's not just the witness of the law. It's not just that they see the law and are struck by its significance as a body of literature. They're struck by the wisdom of the nation that has this law at its heart. Mm -hmm. And so that particular relationship is one that suggests that there's a step beyond this. It's not just that they mm -hmm. see these mm -hmm. are really good commandments. This is a good mo model to follow. But mm -hmm. here are people that have been formed by this law and this people is a wise and understanding, prudent people, and that God is clearly near to them in this and other ways. Yeah, so it's the, it's the embodiment of Torah in Israel's life. It's not like the nations come and find, you know, uh, some country finds that, you know, the, like the American Constitution, this is a good form of government, we're just going to transplant it. It's the, it's the people themselves that are the witness to the wisdom and the, and the goodness of the law. Now, I think the, the analogy, of course, in the New Covenant is the Word of God is given to the church. The church is the holy people. And as the church is formed by the Word of God, then the church becomes the nation that witnesses to the nations about the wisdom and the, uh, the justice uh, and righteousness of God's commandments. So uh, there's, um, yeah, th those are all important qualifications to the, uh, th that's, not, that's not the way that um, the early theonomists would have thought about things, that, that it's a, that it would have this specific focus on Torah with uh, the and Torah would embody uh, on Israel and Torah, Torah would be embodied in Israel and that itself would be a witness or that the law is given to, to the church. Um, so you mentioned it, the um, law being including this element of historical prologue and that seems to come to the foreground at the very end of this particular section. Mm -hmm. The importance of um, being careful and not forgetting the things that your eyes have seen and not letting them fade from your heart, but passing these things on to your children and children's children. That the historical memory of, that is embodied in the law is not to be detached from the actual commandments. The commandments and the historical memory are bound together and mm -hmm. to observe the one requires the memory of the other. And another dimension of this is, this is remember, remembering the setting of Deuteronomy. The Deuteronomy is 
a republication of the command of the law, uh, Moses preaching on the law to an Israel that's about to cross the Jordan and begin the conquest. And there's a tight relationship between the way that the commandments are given in Deuteronomy, the way the Torah is, is given in Deuteronomy, and the way that Israel is supposed to live in the land. And here, the connection is between adherence to the commandments of God and success in the conquest. Um, that's what Moses reiterates that at the beginning of Joshua, uh, this book of the law shall be uh, on your heart. This, this is the law that uh, this book of the law will give you success in everything that you do if you hold to it. And that same that same emphasis is given here in Deuteronomy, and and not just in chapter four, but throughout Deuteronomy. The intimacy of God's relationship with His people um, in verse seven. The way that that's sandwiched between the, the gift of the law and the wisdom of the people, that God's intimacy mm. with them is something that the people will see. Is that connected with the, to what extent do you think that's connected with their obedience to the law within the logic of the passage? Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look more carefully at the passage itself, but I think in, in general terms, you can, a couple of things occur to me. One is the Lord's presence in the, in the Torah is a presence specifically in the tent, enthroned above the uh, wings of the cherubim in the most holy place, uh, with the the ark as his footstool and the command the, the ten commandments inside the ark. So the uh, the Lord's presence and the presence of the word are uh, they're combined there at the, at the center of Israel's life. Uh, and I think your uh, Im- implicit point is uh, is obviously true that the the Lord is near only insofar as and so long as Israel keeps the commandments. And if they reject the Lord, if they turn from him, then he's going to cast them out of his presence. That's the thread of the latter part of Deuteronomy. Um, you have uh, prophetic visions and prophetic warnings about that. The Lord's, uh, the Lord's presence uh, and the presence of the name depends on Israel's faithfulness to uh, faithfulness to the law, to the covenant. The passage that comes to mind here is um, Solomon's prayer of dedication in the temple, the presence of God in the midst of his people, and the way that that draws the attention of the stranger and the foreigner um, in right. prayer. Right. I mean, maybe we can make a connection with the uh, gospel reading in Mark 7, um, at, least, uh, at least in a general way. That in Deuteronomy, Moses is commanding the people to uh, not just to give lip service, but to obey from the heart. Uh, that was the theme of the previous part of uh, Mark 7 that we looked at last time, where Jesus condemned the Pharisees for drawing near with their lips, but being far from him in their heart. But that continues to be an emphasis as he goes on to elaborate on this his teaching about impurity and defilement. The Pharisees are concerned about washing their hands, washing their pots, because they don't want any external defilement to enter into them and so defile them. And Jesus reverses that and says that what defiles someone is not what enters into a person, but rather what comes out of him. Uh, There's nothing outside the man that's going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of man are what defile the man. That's verse 15. And as he goes on, he's, he's not describing the kind of physical issues and flows that that defile in the old covenant law but he's talking about a more moral defilements if you will defilements of adultery fornication thefts murders and so on that proceed from the heart those are what defile a man 
Uh, there's a couple things that, that work around here. One is the, what is he saying about the nature of defilement and how does that fit with the Levitical understanding of defilement? Uh, you could say um, in, in, uh, uh, across much of the purity law, uh, what Jesus says about the direction of defilement is, is literally true, that defilement is what coming, comes from within you. So skin disease is you're defiled if you have flesh that's showing through. Uh, if you're, uh, if a woman has, uh, uh, bears a child, then she's defiled by bearing a child, something that comes out of her. The various uh, issues from the genitals in, in Leviticus 15 are issues that come out from uh, inside. Um, but there are places where defilement come, seems to be coming from outside that seem to violate what Jesus says here. One would be the very issue that he's talking about in the context, which is clean and unclean foods. If you eat an unclean if you eat unclean meat, then you seem to be defiled from the outside. If you touch a dead body or in the presence of a dead body, then you're defiled from the outside. And even with the, some of the other, some of the other forms of defilement, if you're in the vicinity or you, you know you sit in the same chair as a woman during her menstrual period, then you're defiled. It's not coming from your within your body; it's coming from uh, without. So um, you could say that Jesus is not making a global statement about purity here. Um, but he's he has a specific focus, so that would be one way of trying to handle it to try to kind of qualify the scope of what Jesus says about defilement. He's not trying to cover all kinds of defilement; he's covering a certain, maybe maybe deeper forms of defilement. But I think that um, suggest suggested a possible response to that or solution to the problem, and that would be even even those forms of defilement that come from outside are. They register in a human being only because of uh, the death that exists within him. Why is it that a dead body defiles? Jesus is not defiled by a dead body. Uh, he touches dead bodies on a number of occasions, and he raises them from the dead. He's not defiled by a woman who has an issue of blood. Uh, he cleanses her. So the, uh, even with defilements that seem to be coming from outside, they're they uh, they hook into the person, and I'm talking about Levitical under Levitical law. They hook into the person only because there's something within that they can lodge in lodge into. What do you think of that? I think that makes sense. We see on a number of occasions within Jesus' ministry that he has encounters with people that would seem to be defiling, but yet he brings life to them. Whether that's healing leprosy or the one with the issue of blood or touching dead bodies as well and bringing them to life. In each of these cases, the movement is from Christ's life to giving life to the recipient of his mm -hmm. touch mm -hmm. rather than the um, passing of defilement to him. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, in that sense, you could say defilement is lodged, uh, the defilement is something that's uh, lodged within a person. The other, the other uh, thing I was going to highlight was the uh, what seems to be a shift from concerns with, at the beginning of the chapter, concerns with ritual purity, if we want to use that terminology, um, cleansing pots because you don't want to eat unclean food, to moral impurity in verses 20 to 22. He's, Jesus is still using the ter terminology of defilement and pollution, but he's not, using, he's not using that to describe physical forms of defilement, but rather moral. That's a clumsy distinction, but um, he's not. He's not talking about ritual defilement. He's talking about moral defilement. Those, those are terms that come from the 
work of Jonathan Clawins, who's written a number of books on the uh, Levitical system and distinguishes between. Well, first of all, he notices that there's a uh, that the terminology of defilement, pollution, and purity covers both ritual concerns and moral concerns in the Torah. And then he points out that there is a distinction between the two. They operate somewhat differently. They have different sources. Uh, they they have different effects. Uh, moral defilements uh, register more on the land than on the sanctuary. If you commit idolatry or sexual sin, the land will spew you out. If you're unclean then you, uh, in the more ritual senses, then you can't go into the sanctuary. So Jesus is, seems to be shifting the register from what Clowens calls ritual to moral defilements. And what Jesus is saying here is also challenging a deeper attitude towards these ritual commandments that is about a system of quarantine and a system of sterilization of one's environment to avoid pollution mm. without recognizing that the true root of pollution is not mm. found outside, but it's found mm. within. Mm -hmm. And merely quarantining ourselves, we are the people who are suffering from this. Mm. And we can't remove the root of that sin from mm. within us. Mm -hmm. And so wherever we go, we're going to bring this pollution. But yet, for the Pharisees, the way they treat the washing of their hands, the way that they treat these other ritual requirements, acts as if the source of the pollution is not found within them. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, let's uh, take a few minutes to look at the final text, which is Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 through 20. We've been in Ephesians for a while, coming toward the close of the book now. And uh, these are the false final exhortations, which include the famous passage about spiritual warfare and taking up the full armor of God. A couple of initial comments that get us started. Uh, the, uh, the image of the armor of God he's drawing from Isaiah. Uh, but in Isaiah, the armor of God is, you know, you've got that ambiguous genitive. Is it the armor that God gives or is it the armor that God wears? In Isaiah, it's the armor that God wears. And he's equipping himself to go to war. He's the divine warrior that's uh, putting on the armor of God. And a number of the phrases that Paul uses are actually drawn from that Isaiah passage. But here he's, he's talking about the armor that we wear. It's the God's own armor that he's conferred on us. So uh, we're armed with the same, uh, same armor that uh, the Lord uses as he goes to war. Uh, the other uh, point is the, that I wanted to highlight was the very end of the passage where Paul emphasizes the importance of prayer. He's uh, spoken about that already in describing the armor of God and elsewhere in Ephesians, but particularly in the verses verses 18 and 19, kind of stumbles over himself using uh, different terms for prayer. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. So um, Paul almost brings the climax, uh, at the climax of his series of exhortations, is an exhortation to prayer. And it's prayer uh, that's connected with wearing the armor of God. It's prayer that's connected with the spiritual warfare that we're involved in ourselves. But uh, he's asking specifically for the Ephesians to be praying for him so that he can witness boldly before uh, the authorities that uh, have captured him. He can be bold in his witness in the midst of his imprisonment. Do you think there's a connection between the armor of God and the clothing of the high priest? Yes. 
<laughs> Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, you could elaborate in a couple of different directions. One would be to think through the uh, clothing of the high priest as a as an uh, as a kind of armor. When I say you could think through it that way, I realize that I really haven't. But it'd be, it'd be kind of fun to think through in more detail than I ever have. Exodus twenty twenty nine, Leviticus that describes the clothing of the high priest in comparison with the various scenes we have in ancient epic of the uh, arming of the hero. The, the high priest's clothing is the most elaborate clothing that were this, that's ever described in the Old Testament. Uh, and much, Christ himself is the war, warrior priestly bridegroom. Right, right. And the, the priest is going into war. I mean, he spends his day killing things. <laughs> so uh, there's a, uh, there is a, definitely a, a linkage there. The, some of the terminology that Paul uses, uh, breastplate of righteousness, the uh, priest has a breastplate over his, over his chest. Uh, he doesn't wear a helmet, but he does have headgear that uh, designates him as the high priest. He bears a sword. It's a sword that's used for slaughtering and sacrificial animals. So, yeah, that, and that would be one way of bringing out the analogies between worship and warfare that uh, run all the way through the Bible. Paul's sense of the prominence of the principalities and powers that we're struggling against never been something that seems to have the same salience within a lot of the um, a lot of the evangelical and reformed thought that I've been exposed to. Um, how do you think we can have a healthy sense of these war these forces that we're warring against without going into certain extremes? Well, I do think that we have uh, some important lessons to learn, uh, kind of a, an attentiveness and alertness that we can learn from charismatics who are more attentive to ex uh, extra human uh, forces and extra human beings that are uh, involved in our in our lives, I think I do think that there's a. This is a very rough approximation, and it's not based on nearly enough evidence. But I'm going to state the opinion anyway. Um, there does seem to be some relation between the the prominence of the obviousness of activity by demons and evil spirits, and the progress of the gospel. I mean, you have those clashes between the gospel and evangelists and demons that very common in the early church accounts of the evangelization of Europe, for example. Uh, they're also very common in accounts of the evangelization of, uh, of Africa in the last century, century and a half. So those kind of clashes seem to be most prominent in areas where the Satan's hold on people and Satan's hold on a portion of God's world is being broken. But if that's true, then it would seem as the, the gospel is forgotten as the church retreats as it has in in many ways in the in the west and we can expect those kinds of uh, encounters and clashes to be more prominent and that does, you know again i hear that there's there's there are there's evidence of that that there's uh, catholics have a not just charismatics but catholics have a tradition of recognizing uh, demonic activity and having specific ways to combat it and uh, indirectly have heard from catholic uh, about Catholic exorcists who claim that there's a heightened spiritual battles and demonic activity uh, in in uh, in America in recent years. The broader struggle between darkness and light seems to be present earlier on within this same epistle, mm -hmm. and 
redeeming the time from the days of evil.、Mm. There is here a reference to the coming evil day.、Um, do you think that's a specific reference to that period of time in the run-up to、um, specific events, or do you think it's a more generic reference to times of trial? Because it seems that at certain points there are windows of time—the hour of the、mm. ruler of this world—that、mm. comes in the Gospels,、yeah. and the scattering of Jesus' disciples, the sin of、um, Judas,、mm. the betrayal of Judas, and the denial of Peter—that that window of time, if we're not、mm. prepared for it, watch and pray,、mm. lest you enter into the time of testing. That this is a time of sifting and testing, and Satan wants to sift the people of God as wheat,、mm-hmm. and if we're not prepared for that specific point in time, we will be、um, destroyed. Yeah, that makes sense to me,、uh, and it would make sense to say Paul is writing to early Christians who are facing a specific crisis, the multifaceted crisis of the the end of the age, which would include not only Judea and Jerusalem, but、uh, Churches elsewhere. I mean, Ephesus is one of the churches that、uh, Jesus sends a message to in Revelation. So there would be, you know, there's a、uh, makes sense that there would be a specific reference to a coming day that will be in the lifetime of some of the Ephesians. But then, analogously, you could say that that's the, you have a recurring experience of that kind of crisis moment, and those are those are particularly the times when we are called to stand firm and to resist. Those are those are specific times when. The Lord、uh, sifts and winnows the church, and clarifies where the where the the real lines are between His people and the hangers-on who are not going to stand firm. And so, Paul's charge here is essentially the same as Christ's in the Garden of Gethsemane: watch and pray,、um, lest you enter into temptation. Right. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.